Welcome to Quanta Magazine's podcast. Each episode, we bring you stories about developments in science and mathematics. I'm Susan Vallett. If you have a dog or have been around one at a friend's house, you know what kind of little beggars they can be. They'll stare at you while you eat, silently pleading with their wide eyes. They'll cock their heads, maybe even whimper a bit to feign starvation. They haven't always been this way. They evolved to become more tame. And scientists may be getting a first-hand look at that evolution in Australia, where the wild dog, known as the dingo, may be losing some of its wildness. Workers first dug into the rusty dirt beneath the scrublands of Australia's Tanami Desert to mine for gold in 2002. In came the workers and the trash. Rubbish heaps around the mines attracted the lean, golden wild dogs with pointy ears. Like their fully domesticated cousins, dingoes will eat anything, including food left behind by humans. But instead of using discarded food to supplement their normal diet of small animals and birds, the dingoes began eating almost exclusively from the garbage dumps. And over several years, some of the dingoes started approaching the mine sites during the day when people were still around. They became so common that some miners began tracking which dingoes were mating with each other and even created a poster in the town's bar with photos and names of the local dingoes. Thomas Newsom is a dingo expert at the University of Sydney in Australia. He says normally dingoes don't want to associate with humans at all. They usually flee. But these animals have been behaving more like domestic dogs than wild animals in the desert. Newsom spent more than a decade studying the Tanami dingoes. He's identified behavioral, morphological, and physiological changes that separate the human-habituated dingoes from the free-roaming ones living farther in the bush. These changes mimic those thought to have occurred in the earliest stages of dog domestication more than 30,000 years ago. Sure, other wild animals, from raccoons to coyotes, have undergone similar changes since they started living in close quarters with humans. But Newsom began to wonder whether something different might be happening deep within the Tanami Desert. He hypothesized humans might be re-domesticating dingoes. It's a weighty hypothesis, and even Newsom admits all the evidence isn't in yet. Whether humans can and will fully domesticate dingoes remains to be seen. But regardless of that outcome, the details of human-dingo interactions at remote mining camps may help reveal more about how wolves long ago started down the path of evolving into today's dogs. Scientists don't agree on much about the process that turned wild wolves into Rover and Spot. Genetic evidence suggests that dogs were first domesticated somewhere between 15,000 and 40,000 years ago. Archaeological evidence of possible semi-domesticated dogs began appearing more than 30,000 years ago. It's not clear where dog domestication first happened or whether it occurred once or repeatedly. What scientists do know is this. The high-calorie, easily digestible food waste left in and around prehistoric human camps attracted nearby gray wolves. Many of the animals avoided human habitats, but a few had the courage to begin scavenging from the piles of leftovers. 
As time passed, humans began to realize that this relationship had benefits. Wolves could help warn about predators and assist with hunting. But the traits that enabled a wolf's survival in the wild, characteristics like aggression and wariness, weren't always conducive to life with humans. Gradually, wolf behavior gave way to something more dog-like. Kylie Karens is a conservation geneticist and ecologist specializing in dingoes at the University of South Wales in Sydney, Australia. She says for the ancestors of dogs, domestication was a two-way street. Humans didn't set out to domesticate wolves, but both parties found the new arrangement beneficial. As humans continued their spread around the world, they brought their part-wolf, part-dog buddies with them. One theory holds that the ancestors of dingoes arrived in Australia about 4,000 years ago. That's when a group of seafaring people from an Indonesian island arrived in Australia with their canines. Other evidence suggests the animals arrived twice as long ago with settlers by other means. But however and whenever they arrived, those canines, no longer wolves but not quite dogs, returned to their wild roots after reaching Australia. Karen says these dogs weren't domesticated in the sense that we think about. She says they weren't like a pet Labrador. Humans weren't breeding them or controlling which ones bred. Karen says dingoes are probably what dogs would have looked like before humans started messing with them. James McIntyre is the director of the Southwest Pacific Research Project. He's one of the few scientists ever to have studied the New Guinea Highland wild dog, a descendant of those canids that first arrived in Papua New Guinea. The wild dogs, they bred with whomever they wanted to up in the central highland spine of the island of New Guinea. And those that survived, survived because they have adapted to sometimes very harsh climates, the food sources up there, and they have survived all these years because they've remained isolated, they're very shy, very reclusive. McIntyre has also studied the Highland Wild Dog's captive cousins, the New Guinea Singing Dog. You're listening to them right now. The New Guinea Singing Dogs, the Australian Dingoes, are very, very, very closely related. There's only two slight genetic markers that separate New Guinea captive New Guinea singing dogs from the Australian dingo. McIntyre says New Guinea singing dogs have been selectively bred for better behavior for more than 70 years of captivity. He says they're still a primitive dog, much like a wolf. They still retain natural primitive behaviors, even though you can raise them from a puppy in your home around children and things like that. So it takes a special owner to have a New Guinea singing dog. It seems like no matter how you raise them, they are still very predatory. And you have to be very careful with them around other dogs. You have to be careful with them around livestock, squirrels, anything. They just do what they do. Both dingoes and highland dogs return to a wild state after their initial interaction with humans. In Australia, dingoes emerged as the continent's mammalian apex predator and won the admiration and respect of the aboriginal peoples. 
But European settlers in the early 1900s instituted eradication campaigns and built a dingo-proof fence across thousands of kilometers in the harsh outback. Mike Letnick is a wildlife and conservation ecologist at the University of New South Wales. He spent a lot of time driving along that dingo-proof fence. He says it reflects Australian attitudes toward dingoes, even today. I don't think that wild dingoes in Australia are going to be domesticated. and That's simply because culturally we're very tolerant of them around our settlements. There's a deep sense of sort of antipathy against dingoes in Australia. So dingoes are poisoned, shot, trapped, you know, as a great pest, and they're still treated that way. Thomas Newsom has had a lifelong interest in dingoes. He traveled around Australia as a young boy with his dad, who also studied the culturally unwelcome wild dogs. As an adult, Newsom moved to Central Australia to work as an environmental consultant. That's where he began hearing stories about dingoes clustering around mine sites in the Tanami Desert. Humans were encroaching into previously pristine wilderness. That meant increased conflict between people and wildlife. Newsom wanted to understand how this played out. He says dingoes made a natural starting point. The Tanami is one of the most isolated deserts on Earth. It sits in the sparsely populated southwestern corner of the Northern Territory. It's home to the most genetically pure population of wild dingoes. Newsom's work documented a group of about 100 of the animals that lived alongside the mining settlement, eating from the dump site, which had enough scraps to feed twice as many. But 100 kilometers away, in the much more sparsely populated outback, Newsom also studied completely wild dingoes that had minimal contact with humans. The first difference he noticed was in size. The human-habituated dingoes were 20% larger than their wild counterparts, thanks to the nutrient-dense leftovers they found around the mine. Other variations began to stand out, too. A 2014 study in the Journal of Mammalogy analyzed the diets of dingoes and free-roaming domestic dogs using scat samples. Newsom and his colleagues showed that nutritionally, the dingoes at the mine site ate as well as domestic dogs and differently from the wild dingoes. A follow-up study revealed that the all-you-can-eat buffet at the Tanami Desert mine site altered the dingoes' social behavior, too. Their home ranges were smaller, and their group size was larger. Newsom attributes that to readily available nutrient-dense food. The dingoes also overcame their fear of humans, weaving around Newsom's legs as he set traps, trying to get him to play. Newsom found that the metamorphosis triggered by the arrival of the Toonami mines reflected even in the dingoes' DNA. When he compared the genomes of the mine and outback dingoes, he found that the two groups, separated by distances easily traversed by most dingoes, had stopped interbreeding. As the dingoes spent more and more time around humans, they grew increasingly isolated from their wilder counterparts. Newsom laid out his hypothesis in a paper in Bioscience in April of last year. He proposed that dingoes had taken the first steps toward a second domestication event, one paralleling that of the dogs long ago. The changes that Newsom had identified, the behavioral shifts and the genetic isolation, also probably occurred when wolves began their slow transition to domestic dogs. 
Should these changes play out for another couple hundred years, perhaps humanity may create a domestic dingo. These changes won't exactly recap the transition from wolf to dog because dingoes experienced partial domestication in their distant past. But genetic differences between dingoes and dogs are still clearly identifiable. Angie Johnston, who studies canine behavior at Yale, says given dingoes' ancient history with partial domestication, it makes sense that they may adapt to humans quickly. Johnston measured how readily wolves, dingoes, and domestic dogs sought eye contact with humans. So eye contact's really special because it's kind of a multi-use tool, in a sense. So when eye contact between dogs and humans, it can serve as a way to help facilitate bonding between dogs and humans, but it also can be used as a communicative cue. So we know that dogs are able to make eye contact with humans to signal maybe they need help on something or to check in with humans and see, you know, this is a little bit of a scary situation. How are you feeling? You know, so eye contact can do bonding. It can do communication. Johnston found in terms of eye contact, dingoes fall right between wolves and dogs. The dingoes are always, I think, going to be really fascinating species for mm. comparing to dogs and to wolves because they do give us this early snapshot into domestication. With the eye contact, I think personally that the eye contact could be something that we're seeing start to support further domestication. So in the case of dingoes, we saw that the dingoes were more likely to make eye contact than the wolves. And when they did so, they would make eye contact for a little bit longer. The difference in the amount of time isn't that big. It's something like less than one second compared to around three seconds. But something like that can be huge when you're thinking about how a behavior might be shaped. But dingo expert Kylie Karens points out these changes alone don't create a domestic animal. Other factors, like increased reproductive rates and a dependence on humans for survival, need to shift before an animal can become fully domesticated. The dingoes haven't yet fulfilled those criteria, even if Newsom believes they've taken their first steps in that direction. Karens reminds us that dingoes can survive without humans. Anandita Bhadra says domestication of dogs or any animal takes hundreds or thousands of generations. Bhadra is an ecologist at the Indian Institute of Science Education and Research, Kolkata. She studies the behavior of India's street dogs. India's oldest surviving written book, the Veda, contains 3,500-year-old references to roaming packs of street dogs, long predating the huge packed cities of New Delhi, Mumbai, and Kolkata. Hand raise the pups of those street dogs, though, and you can find yourself with a friendly mutt and house pet. Badra says the puppies blindly trust humans and are very easy to make friends with. Not so with dingoes. Bradley Smith, a dingo expert at Central Queensland University, says although some Australians have successfully kept dingoes as pets, the animals can be unpredictable and are far more aggressive than the average dog. But ferocious traits aren't immutable. Starting in the 1950s, Russian geneticists in Siberia took wild silver foxes and selectively bred the tamest ones. Within 40 generations, they had created cute, cuddly foxes with floppy ears that could be kept as pets. What's occurring at the Tanami mines is neither deliberate nor controlled, 
But Newsom says the tamed Russian foxes show that under the right circumstances, domestication can happen far more quickly than anyone realized. Ecologist Mike Letnick says it's technically possible for dingoes to become a second species of domestic dog, but he says it's not probable. People have and do domesticate dingoes. Often people will find a pup and raise a pup, but they turn out to be pretty poor dogs because they've got this wild side to them. They're not tame. They can become friendly, but they've got a different demeanor to dogs. They can be more aggressive and more unpredictable, less loyal. Besides, Letnick points out that we already have a domestic dog, so he's not sure people will see a need for another one. As for those dumpster divers in Tanami Desert, it looks like redomestication is as much up to them as it is to us. Michelle Yoon helped with this episode. I'm Susan Vallett. For more on this story, read Carrie Arnold's full article, A Domesticated Dingo? No but some are getting less wild on our website, quantamagazine.org.